Hello again and welcome to the Gospel Boldly podcast, where we confess with St. John that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I'm Thomas Lemke, and uh, normally I would be joined by Pastor Eric Brown, who would pipe in about this time. This week, however, unfortunately, that's not the case, simply because Pastor Brown is out uh, due to unforeseen circumstances, because the plague is always unforeseen. Uh, or it would be if you weren't the last person in your family to get it, as I guess he was this time. So maybe not that unseen as far as that goes. That being said, though, uh, we did not want to skip this week's uh, uh, Gospel Boldly podcast episode. And so what we're going to be doing is uh, putting up our Count It All Joy show, our previous podcast, uh, Reformation Special, recorded back in 2013, where we went through uh, some clips from the Martin Luther film that came out in 1953 and discussed uh, various elements from Martin Luther's life as presented in that particular feature film and uh, just had a good time in doing it. Since uh, Reformation Day was here very recent as of this recording, I figured it would be uh, completely appropriate to go ahead and use that one as a gap filler. This particular episode will be longer than normal because the uh, Martin Luther movie slash Reformation special episode we did for the Canada All Joy show was uh, two hours long, approximately, uh, combined or, or, or separated out into two different episodes at that point in time. So I've edited them, edited them rather together in this particular one. So it's going to be a long deal. Feel free to take it in bite-sized chunks, maybe something that would be worthwhile listening to on your way to uh, maybe a family trip for Thanksgiving or something coming up, um, or, you know, whenever you normally listen to the show. Regardless, here it is, our conversation on the Martin Luther movie and the Reformation special. Enjoy. Now, before we get to the actual start of the movie, I'm going to be a bit of a wet rag. <laughs> and this is just one of the things that comes up. I, I dislike a lot of the ways in which Reformation Day can be treated amongst Lutherans. We can treat it as a rah-rah pep talk day, where almost like it's the, the culture celebration or the heritage celebration. Yeah. <laughs> Lutheran and, History Month. <laughs> and see, that, that's odd because really that that day if we were to do that shouldn't be october 31st because mm -hmm. that's early on and i mean if you read the 95 theses there are points where luther doesn't sound very lutheran and we'll we'll, we'll discuss why that happens later i'm sure right on but but really that that day if we want to celebrate this is our lutheran doctrine would be june 25th because what happened on June 25th, 1530, Thomas? Well, if I remember our prior discussions on the Count Joy Show, that would be the Augsburg Confession presentation. Right. So, I mean, that would be more the, the let's go over everything in Lutheran doctrine. I mean, Reformation Day was just the opening salvo. Mm -hmm. But what is beautiful about the 95 Theses, and the first thesis is the one that you really should remember, when our Lord Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire lives of Christians should be one of repentance. Mm -hmm. And so I tend to take the day as a call to repentance, a reminder that, man, we can mess up. Right. Because, I mean, that's really what Reformation is. It's the, if, if error goes on unchecked, it'll get worse and worse and worse and worse. And what you have with the Reformation is just the errors that have gone unchecked and unchecked or or had not been fully checked, gets corrected. So, 
with a giant, big giant jerk. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, one other thing just to bring up too, before we actually get to Luther, Mm. um, one prof at the seminary would describe it. We have this idea of, of reformation day where, where Martin Luther walks out to the church and, and he pounds the thesis on the, on the door and everyone applauds and they sing a mighty fortress and go home. (laughs) That's not how it works. Um, you have actually had throughout the late middle ages, you had plenty of other people who were doing reform attempts. When Luther says, we've got some things wrong, we need to fix it. It's not as though he's the first person in a thousand years to suggest that Rome could be wrong. Mm-hmm. You had a uh, Wycliffe in England who wanted to translate the scriptures into English. You had uh, Jan Hush. You had tons of other th- folks. In fact, many of the, the famous theologians were, were folks who wanted to correct things. The difference is Luther really kind of bluntly attacks the pocketbook. And from there, things spiral out of hand. And, or I shouldn't say out of hand, out of, out of man's hands and by God's control, and we get some good stuff. So do you have any other like random thoughts or questions before we, we end up looking at some other stuff? Um, just a comment that I'm sure... Other than uh, since since other than the movie and my own confirmation history, my reformation knowledge is uh, somewhat well. I, I fall short. I'll put it that way. I'm sure we'll be depending on you a little bit here, but I I do have questions to ask as we go about the clips we're going to hear and uh, things that come up with those. Oh, all right. Th- so this will be fun. First clip we're going to play for you is the introduction to the Luther movie. Just kind of set the stage to what was going on in the time period and uh, hopefully introduce our own conversation as well that would have been awesome if i'd come in and switch movies so like suddenly we had like okay never mind <laughs> 1500 years after the birth of our lord the lands and people of central europe comprised the holy roman empire a strange and mystical commonwealth which compelled allegiance both to emperor and pope in this political structure were the rich states and free cities of Germany, whose princes and counselors commanded armies pledged to defend both empire and Holy Roman Church. The pious believed God himself had established dual authority over Christian man. They accepted the emperor as ruler of life on earth and the church as intercessor for man's destiny in the world to come. The church had largely forgotten the mercies of God, and instead it emphasized God's implacable judgments. Even Jesus Christ was presented as a relentless avenger, and man himself so hopelessly engulfed in sin that he must live in perpetual dread of a furious God. Painted constantly and vividly before his eyes were the fires and torments of hell. Great images at this point. The early 16th century was a time of deep-rooted superstition and fear. Christianity was mixed with elements of paganism, and men believed the world was filled with demons and evil spirits. protection and deliverance from eternal damnation, the church demanded absolute and unquestioning obedience of the people. Uh, 
There you have it. All right. Ooh, well, our, okay, you you get to start it on here. Right. So just to kick things off, um, I mean, obviously you have the clip that was just played, but what I'm hearing is um, really you have a, a dual-tier system of authority going on. You've got, on the one hand, the... The, we'll call them the secular rulers, the, the princes, emperor, and all that. And then you have the church rule. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, the rule of the church, the rule of the state, and how those were intertwined and maybe cooperated? Well, what's interesting about it at the time, go, going into the, the 16th century in Germany, uh, you have what's the Holy Roman Empire. It's basically uh, you when Charlemagne had his empire, it basically split apart mm-hmm. and— one part became modern France, and then one part actually holds together as what, what was called the Holy Roman Empire, and it claimed to be the the true honest successor of Rome. Well, until 1453, Constantinople would have contested that point. Ah, right. But, but basically, you have an heir of Charlemagne who is, well, actually, no, you don't quite. Let me, let me correct that. It's the, the heir of that kingdom— and it covers Germany is a patchwork of small independent states, cities, what have you. In fact, uh, I think there's roughly 300 different political groups, and they're all semi-independent, but they owe their allegiance because it's a very feudal setup to the emperor. Okay, and there are seven electors, uh, feudal lords, who, whenever the emperor dies, elects the new one. And okay. normally it's going to be like the kid or the descendant, but it's yeah, we could elect someone else, so don't mess with us. Right. And, uh, in fact, uh, one of the uh, the folks that's going to come up is uh, the elector, Frederick the Wise, mm-hmm. who, who's going to come on up. But that that's his power. On the other hand, you also had the church. And, basically, the idea was you didn't have options about where you went. You had – it was just the church. That's all there was. And – one of the things that it points out is that uh, it's kind of hard for the modern person to think of the authority that the church wielded at that time simply because while it was a theological rule, it was also a political rule as well mm-hmm. because – all right, uh, let's say Thomas is the Duke of Brandenburg. Ooh, fancy. All right. A- and he does something that ticks me off as the Pope. Well, what do I do? I don't know. I Thomas, you, me. <laughs> you stop or I excommunicate you and you burn in hell forever. Oh. A- and that's not viewed as just a, a inconsequential threat, but that's reality. And you do have much more things going on with that in terms of politics uh-huh. because – the Pope is a prince in his own right as well, too. I mean, he rules a nation. Well, even today, you have the Vatican City. Right. But, I mean, it was a much more influence in, in politics. And you, you have interaction all over the place between France and the papacy and, and the Genevan state. And So, I mean, the church is also a, a player in international politics that uses religious force and military force, too, on occasion. So it's just a a, a different setup than what we're used to thinking. And as the the thing pointed out, much more of the theological talk was on condemnation. Um, 
you have basically a really poorly educated clergy, that a, a clergy that's not necessarily very well educated, mm-hmm. and sort of um, minimized down to the the keep things in line, keep things orderly. Uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but think of Governor Tarkin in Star Wars. Fear will keep the systems in line. Okay. I mean, th- that's sort of the idea that that you behave, otherwise you end up in hell. Got it. Rather than let's talk about forgiveness, let's talk about repentance, let's talk about the mercies of God. It's God is the angry judge as opposed to the judgments of God that you are forgiven in Christ. Okay. So that kind of get what you were wanting. Absolutely. One more question before we play our next clip for you. Actually, maybe two. Okay. Um, the first one is, it, they talked momentarily about the church being somewhat syncretistic in the sense that it took in pagan ideas and made them, well, incorporate it into the, into the church. Now, I, I'm not sure I know specifically what it's referring to there, but I do know, you know, obviously there was a lot of speculative theology going on at the time. How many angels can dance on the head of the pen is one that comes up often. What you have there with with that is that's really more there that movie's attempt to really talk about the the prevalence of superstition mm-hmm. and even it's one of the things where I think the movie goes a touch too far. Oh, they believe there were evil spirits. Well, yeah, there are. <laughs> right. So, but but things were very uh, superstitious in how you dealt with the evil spirits, how you how you handled things. Okay, and some of those kind of are non-scriptural and we're kind of more folk wisdomy and kind of so gotcha. so it's sort of almost like what you can see in some of the 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 holidays in South America and stuff like that some of that approach where it's just you kind of baptize them and christianize it a little bit and then it's eh, that's just what the Germans do okay that's just what uh-huh. and and so there wasn't necessarily as much of a a focus on let's look and how see, see how pure this is, mm-hmm. how undefiled it is, as long as you have people towing the line. So sort of you can give the the run to the local custom as long as everyone's being orderly and keeping in their right and proper place. Okay. It, it really is very much almost a, a feudal approach. So very good. Okay. Now, here's the one last thing um, before we get to the next clip. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just make some remarks here, and you step in and correct me if I'm wrong. So here's what I understand. It's going to be like that Batman and Robin mem. <laughs> um, okay. So into this mix steps Martin Luther, who initially, he's the son of a miner, as I understand it, copper miner, I believe. Right. Um, and... He was baptized, isn't that right? He was christened on St. Martin's Day? Yes. That's the origin for his mm-hmm. name? Oh, I got one. All right. So uh, he went to school to be a law student, as I understand it. Right. But somewhere in the course of his studies ended up be- between, I think, college and home, or between one destination, point A, point B, ends up mm-hmm. in a rainstorm, the way the story goes that I've heard, mm-hmm. and prays, um, and again, in the story I've heard, to St. Anna, saying... Right. If I'm saved from the storm, if I come through this alive, I'll, I'll become a monk. Help That's me, it. I'll become a monk. Right. Okay. So this is all right. good stuff. Okay. So Luther at that point quits law school, if he what, what little he had left, right. and begins his training at the monastery as a monk. Much to his father's consternation. <laughs> I'm sure. Because uh, when, when you say minor, I mean, don't, what, what happens is his dad had basically worked his way up to being where he was part of the burgeoning middle class. I mean, he could ascend, afford to send his son to college. Right. So what do you do? You send the kid to college, he's going to become the <laughs> lawyer, and what's that going to do for the family income? Uh, 
that. Well, more than income, it'll add to the prestige as well, right. which is important. And what does young Martin do? He's going to become monk. a monk. Which means I'll give away all my earthly possessions and take a vow of poverty. <laughs> yeah. This this investment that 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 the mother load turned up empty. I mean, so so uh, his dad actually is quite angry with him for quite some time. Uh-huh. Just like, sort sort of almost like the equivalent of well, I, I I'm almost done with my engineering degree, but I'm going to go join the Peace Corps. <laughs> I spent how much money you're joining the <laughs> ah! yeah so you have like sort of that, that like type that. of uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well <laughs> okay. I mean it's almost that type of you can almost think of it as that type of experience where you had something weird that happened and you're just like no I'm not going to go do what I was going to do anymore I'm, I'm mm-hmm. doing something different so. alright and so here is our Luther joins the monastery clip like so many others before him Martin Luther sought to make his peace with God in submission to the discipline and authority of the Holy Church. Are you prepared, my son, to follow the rules of the Augustinian order? To die to the self, to the world, the flesh? To renounce family and friend? To suffer poverty? To mortify your body? To be obedient to your superiors in all things? With the help of God, I am, insofar as human frailty permits. Pax take him. It comes spirit to her. There you have it. So as you heard, then, Luther joins the Augustinian order of monks. Is there anything right. you can tell us about the difference or distinction there might be between the Augustinians and the other orders? Well, what happens is you have a, the development over time of different monastic orders initially when you start off with monasticism it really kind of starts in the the fourth century Mm -hmm. when christianity is legalized and basically as christianity is legalized it becomes really worldly and you get a bunch of people saying okay this is junk Mm -hmm. and the first thing they do is they kind of go off in the desert on their own and live in caves as as ascetics then they kind of band together Mm -hmm. and then you you end up having eventually rule set up uh, one of the famous first ones is St. Benedict, who comes up with uh, the rule of Benedict. All right, we're going to – these are the rules we're going to abide by if we're going to stay in this community. Benedict was actually very unpopular. The monks tried to poison him off twice. Oh, snap. <laughs> uh, the, the first time they tried to poison – I might have gotten these backed up, but one mixed up in order. But one time they tried to poison his drink, mm-hmm. and basically as he picks up the cup, it shatters. Oh, okay. And then the other time they poison his bread, and a bird swoops down and, and steals his bread before he eats it. Oh, or at least wow. those stories go. Right, right. Um, but what happens is, over the course of time, most of the, the, the monks take a vow of poverty. But mm-hmm. that is not, we as a monastic corporation will be broke. It is, I as an individual member will not have any control over wealth. Okay. But if you came in, you might bring your wealth. You might give stuff to the monastery. So what happens is these monasteries grow in, in power. They become land barons. And then you'll have other people saying, that's not what monkism should, monasticism <laughs> should be. We, we'll, we're going to do it right and we'll be poor. And, and then like 400 years later, they have tons of money. And right. <laughs> you see the cycle repeat. Uh-huh. But um, the Augustinians are one that arise in the, the middle of the uh, – I can't remember exactly when they get founded. Uh, they they hearken back to to Saint Augustine in the sense of we're we're gonna look at what he taught, and they are 
oh, in the in the twelfth and thirteenth century, you start get a rise uh, a rash of of the mendicant orders where they're going to be poor, but they're also going to go out and dedicate themselves to to teaching. Uh, the two big ones are the Franciscans, started by St. Francis, and the Dominicans, started by St. Dominic. And they they had their different nuances on what they do and how they approach. The Augustinians were among that. They were they were designed as as a, a an active, we're going to go out, we're going to preach, we're going to teach type of thing. But they tended to have much more of a focus on being scholarly. That that you got a lot of of teachers coming out. So it makes perfect sense that that Martin Luther, graduate college student type guy working in a law degree, uh-huh. would go to the academic monastery, basically. Right. Okay. Interestingly enough, um, you can almost think of them as the modern as the equivalent in Luther's day of the Jesuits. Oh, okay. Because what happens is. Um, a lot of the Augustinians go follow Luther. And so you still have an Augustan, uh, Augustinian monks, but they're kind mm. of falling out of favor and you don't have as many of them. Sure. And it's in the 16th century when the Jesuits are founded to be the intellectual shock troops to go debate the Lutherans. Oh. So you can almost think of the Augustinians as the forerunners of the Jesuits, although it's not a, a perfect comparison. It's closer to that, that ideal. Okay. So just as you're, if you go to a Roman Catholic university today, you're going to see Jesuits mm-hmm. quite often or a greater number of them. That was the same thing in, in Luther's day with the fledgling university system. You had a lot of Augustinians who were interested in teaching. Got it. Cool. Okay. So in is again, this is as far as I understand, step in and correct me where I'm wrong. In in the Augustinian monk, Luther is one of the big, you know, beat yourself up type of guys. He's very hard on himself, has a very keen sense of his own sinfulness. Luther was a problem monk. <laughs> okay. Um one of the things that comes up with, with being a monk is that you you are supposed to be aware of your sin, you're to confess it, you mortify your flesh. It's not something that it's like, yes, go beat yourself, but it's something that it's there if you if you feel the need to. Mm-hmm. They had to tell Luther to stop because he was doing it too much. Wow. Or, You're going to kill yourself. In fact, uh, uh, his fellow monks would uh, basically complain whenever they were assigned to do uh, confession duty. Mm-hmm. Because basically Luther would keep banging on their door <laughs> in the middle of the night, remembering another sin that he did and needing to confess it. And, the, and you actually have records of the, the complaints to... to uh, Stalpitz, the, 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 the head guy, uh-huh. saying, make Martin stop. I've heard his confession eight <laughs> times tonight. This, this is... Uh-huh. So, so uh, wow. as Paul was the Pharisee's Pharisee, mm-hmm. Luther was the uber monk. Okay. Because, uh, again, what what drives this is he has this, this terrible dread of God's wrath. Right. That that God is angry and you must placate him. I can't plague him out in the world, that's not holy enough. I'll go to the monastery to to demonstrate to to try and, and make God less angry with me. And he can't do it. He's too aware of his own frailty, his own flaws, and he's driven and driven and driven. So Wow. I don't know what your next quote's going to be. What what? We're uh sending Luther to Rome. Ah, okay. So You must not fail to hear a mass before the altar of St. John in Lateran. Mm-hmm. 
in a certain wall, you will see two crosses. Behind one, the relics of Peter. Behind the other, of Paul. An act of faith performed there relieves your soul of 17,000 years in flames. Be sure to see one of the 30 pieces of silver for which Christ was betrayed. Carries an indulgence of 14,000 years. And the scarlet sanctum, the very stairs that Jesus climbed in the palace of Pontius Pilate. And our Father said on each step earns nine years' indulgence. And on the step where Christ fell, you will see a silver cross. For that step, a double indulgence. And if you are fortunate, you may see with your own eyes the Holy Father, Julius II, the Supreme Pontiff. There's our clip. And now you have 30 seconds to exposit on this before the break. <laughs> All right. So what do you do with a monk who's just terrified and he keeps bugging you? You send him on a field trip. <laughs> and that's basically what they do. They're like, okay, he's terrified about the afterlife. Go to Rome. Get a bunch of indulgences and relax. <laughs> so I mean, it's basically they try sending him to Rome to get him to chill out. Monk of vacation. <laughs> road trip. We'll, we'll talk more about that after the break. All right. All right. All right, we will come back after this with more of a Reformation Day special. Somewhere in the heart of Rome, I'll make a wish in every mountain. Say a prayer that you'll return. Minutes I'll be counting. May the fire of still burn. talk a little bit more about the idea of vacation <laughs> um basically part of what goes on with the the thought of the day is this idea of purgatory mm-hmm. and now thomas if i say purgatory what do you think of uh souls in uncomfortable places maybe a little bit of fire maybe not too much fire on a mountain oh, fire ascending towards heaven the seven levels i think of dante's inferno in the second book and all that just as, as the, the, the background, the theory had developed over the course of a thousand years that the idea was, as a good little Christian, you're supposed to be good. Correct, Thomas? Oh, yes. And remember, we're, we're wagging the finger. Right, right. <laughs> well, what if you aren't as good as you're supposed to be? That poses a problem, doesn't it? Well, 
God doesn't want to just outright condemn you, but you've got to, you've got to fill up your, your obligation. Mm -hmm. And so what mm -hmm. happened, the theory was that there would be a place of purgation where the, the spots in your soul could be kind of purged away ah, over dross over, from silver over. <laughs> well, yeah. That's one of the things they talk about uh -huh. over, over thousands and thousands of years. Oh, good. And so that's why sin was bad. I mean, if you do something bad, it's not just, oh, yeah, I got mad at my wife. No, it's, I got mad at my wife, and that means I'll spend another 10,000 years in purgatory. <laughs> right. And so so basically, this is, explains the, the trip to Rome. If you're worried about you haven't done enough, you need an extra shot of merit, mm -hmm. okay, go to Rome. You go see the sites, be a pilgrim, and that takes away a lot of time. That that that's that that you're earning the divine brownie points, as it were. Uh -huh. And so that's why you have the the go do this, and you get fourteen thousand years out of purgatory or what have you. And so that's where the relics come in, where you have like the saints having an overabundance of merit to deposit right. into your account. Well, and that's basically what a saint was. It was someone who had extra work that they could loan out to you. Sweet. So a saint presumably would spend no time in purgatory. Right. Saint, saints get purgatory. Do not pass code. Do right. not collect $200. Well, no. No, they, they, pa they pass and they, they go straight. Right, right. right. Straight pass yeah. code and, and keep, yeah, it keep would on be, going. It would, be, it would be just visiting on my way to go. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, but no, this is also... This does come up to you, and that's part of the superstition thing, that, that there was a an industry in the sale of relics. Mm -hmm. And if you were a church, you'd want to have cool relics, and people could come and venerate your relics and get X time off of purgatory. Gotcha. Well, of course, the place above all else to do that is Rome. I mean, that that's, well, sure. the, 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 that, that's the super Walmart of... of <laughs> <laughs> but, but I mean, even if you were up and around, you'd try and collect relics because then people would say, well, mm -hmm. I, I don't have time to go to Rome, but I can go the 50 miles to, to Wittenberg uh -huh. and see the, the nice small collection of relics they have there. Right. And, and okay, I'm not going to get what I'd get off of Rome, but, hey, I mean, I, I can take a, a week and I can get 50,000 years off pur purgatory or whatever it would be. Right. So, but basically the idea is, okay. Martin's driving us nuts. We're going to send him to Rome. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been to Rome. Okay. And uh, I've actually gotten to uh, visit the, the Latin, uh, St. John's Lateran. So I've been there and I've been to the Vatican. And St. Peter's, I assume, which will come up yeah. later. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I've been there. I've also been to um, the uh, the monastery where Luther would have stayed. Oh, it's yeah. It's on the okay. northwest side of town and it has two fantastic paintings. And it, I mean, it's known in art circles. It's got a Caravaggio's. Uh, conversion of Paul and the crucifixion of Peter. I mean, they're, they're famous right works of art and they're, they're gorgeous. I mean, it's a great place. It's like, yeah, Luther stayed here. <laughs> <laughs> they don't trumpet that as much as they would if this were Germany, but details. But, do, 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 so. but just any other thoughts about the, the field trip to Rome? Um, just, you know, and all I have to go off of at this point is the movie where it seems like Luther takes it in good stride. You have a montage of him doing the things right. as the, mm -hmm. the vicar is telling him, you know, he did. He was eager. I mean, it, it is something that, that is a, or was a, a good highlight. I mean, it's something that, that, oh yeah, you got to do it. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it's almost like if you're a Cubs fan, you got to go to a game at Wrigley Field. Mm -hmm. Or that, if you go to Disney Epcot, you got to ride Space Mountain. Right, right. <laughs> it's just yeah. something you do. I, 
and I mean, those are all kind of flippant, but it does have almost that touristy sort of uh-huh. of appeal to it. The or the okay, the book back then would have been a thousand and one places to see before you die. It's like <laughs> the, the, this is what you do before you die as right. a good Christian, if you can. Okay, I mean, there was no there was no uh, obligation like with Mecca. But you actually have throughout the Middle Ages a really strong pilgrim culture. Uh-huh. I mean, that's something that that is kind of encouraged. Gotcha. So, so now in all of this time where he's spent at the monastery, obviously he's had his trip to Rome. And how long is he at the monastery anyway as a monk in the Augustinian order? Do you have that number in your head? I, I want to say he joins the monastery right around 1505, although I could be off. Okay. And he ends up heading to Wittenberg to become a professor in, I believe, 1515. Okay. So, so in the intervening decade or right, so, yeah, yeah. approximately, he's developing his right. theology and working through... Now, does your next clip take him to, to Wittenberg or... Not quite. Okay, okay. The, the next clip then actually... Hold off. Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. <laughs> In te domine sperate, in justitia tua libra me. If only some of our people, all of our people, could realize that in this psalm, David is telling us, in thee, O Lord, I trust, in thy righteousness deliver me. If only everybody could understand these words, how much better they would understand God's righteousness. And what, dear brother, is God's righteousness? Exactly what scripture says, Father, that it delivers and does not merely judge. Rather, an interesting interpretation of scripture. Did you learn that in Rome? Not that I recall, Father Pryor. From your studies of the church fathers? No. Your own? To the best of my knowledge, yes. There is only one proper interpretation of scripture. That which the church has established. What if scripture were in the hands of common man for every potboy and swineherd to read in his own language and interpret for himself? What then? Why, then we might have more Christians, Father. Latin has served the church for centuries. Latin was good enough for St. Jerome and St. Augustine. And Latin will have to be good enough for you and me and every other Christian. Yes, Father. So he mentions the translator of the Vulgate and their founding, well, so so to speak, founding member, Augustine, or patron, I suppose. Mm-hmm. One of the things to uh, to remember about Luther is he had a great love of the biblical languages. Mm-hmm. In fact, he ended up being one of the, the first modern Hebrew scholars. I mean, he nice. does a lot of the groundwork. Because at the same time, this is when you have the uh, the rediscovery of of Greek in the West and also Hebrew in the West with the Renaissance. Uh-huh. So, so what you do have there in the background is just not just a, a let's get into the common tongue, but also the ad fontes was the phrase to the sources. Uh-huh. Let's move away just from the Latin translation of Jerome and let's see what the Greek said. Right. Let's see what the, the Hebrew said. And, and Luther is part of that even early on. I mean, he does have a, a fantastic inquisitive mind and, uh, so no, it, it, it's an interesting clip. I'm just, it's funny because I'm remembering where all these come on up in the movie now as it goes <laughs> on. And I think my my one criticism I would make of that mm-hmm. clip is it makes it seem as though Luther kind of ignored what happened before him, and that that oversells it quite a bit. Right. 
you do get a lot of that type of talk in Augustine. You get a ton of it in St. Ambrose, who was the teacher of Augustine. You don't get as much of it in Jerome, and Luther tends to grouse quite a bit about Jerome and complain about how he does some translations for the the, the Vulgate, too, and things like that. But but Luther is hearkening to an older stream of thought here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's part of the reason why it appeals to a lot of the Augustinians. Right. He's very well-versed in the Fathers. So I think that that I think that quote kind of made it a little bit too anti early church there. Like this is something so, so to speak. Oh, so you came up with this Luther and no one had thought, well, and that's one of the, the, the popular myths or idea of Uh of Luther as, and the Lutherans as innovators. Right. And that was never how the Lutherans argued. In fact, uh, the great example, that's the Augsburg Confession, where one, they cite the church fathers all the time and they basically say, look, we're, we're not doing anything new at, at, we're, we're teaching what the church has always taught, mm-hmm. and at best, we're correcting some errors that have crept up in the last few centuries. That, that's it. That, right. That, that's all. And that's an important distinction to make, that they're not like a Joseph Smith coming and taking a, a massive bifurcation from the right. church going off in their own direction. But what you do have going on in the 50s when this movie comes, and things, and this is, holds true even to culture, we really like the idea of the, the individual man who stands on his own. <laughs> um there was concern about not so much everyone interpreting scripture for themselves, but just being totally confused. Because I mean, even if you had scripture in the in the the common tongue, you're not going to have everyone reading it because not everyone can read. So I mean, the, the idea is we don't need to translate it because I'm teaching you, Thomas. You're going to listen to what I say. You don't need to actually read the stuff. To, <laughs> you're just going to listen to what I tell you. So, I mean, that, that that's okay. Sure. So, so some of that is viewed through, through modern eyes and kind of putting a little bit of a modern spin on it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the attitudes are the same. There was an idea that the scriptures were sacred mm-hmm. and because of that, dangerous. Mm, okay. Dangerous to the common man. In fact, a lot of the, the Bibles would be locked. Partially because they were highly valuable. Books were, were valuable. And sure. you don't, Printing press had only recently come online right. at this point anyway. You, you don't go mess around with the things that are holy. Mm-hmm. You you have your priest who is the mediator between the holy things, which might smite you, and, <laughs> and, and you. So Okay. All right. Now, the next clip is uh, the... We'll say introduction of Luther into Frederick's knowledge. Oh, one other one other thing quickly before we get in. Yeah. Um, as a note, do you have in here a clip of Luther getting ordained? I don't think there was that scene in the movie. Oh, there. Oh, yeah, where he tries to say the Lord's Supper for the first time and can't get through it. I don't remember that one in this movie. I might have the wrong version of it. I know you told me to get the one version that no. maybe I didn't get, but uh, who knows? Well, one of the things that does come up, it's a, a great scene. Luther ends up being ordained as a priest while he's at the monastery. Mm-hmm. And that's something to, that is a distinction. Not all monks were priests. There, there would be some monks who would be ordained as priests and he does get ordained as a priest as well. I'm starting to remember that clip now. Yep. And, and I don't it, have it. It's uh it's just one of the neat scenes where, where Luther goes to, celebrate mass for the first time because he's been ordained and he can't get through it. Just yeah. the, the, the awe of, of, uh, and, and, and the stop it tries to comfort him. Oh, you know, lots of guys flub their first time. I mean, it's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> like, I'm terrified of God. And I right. think that's what actually makes him go. Yeah. Get thee to Rome. 
I think you're right. Yeah, yeah I think right. that would come up earlier. I should have watched this before doing this. Right? <laughs> well, recently. All right. All right. So here is uh, Frederick. Mm-hmm. In the town of Wittenberg, Duke Frederick, the wise and pious elector of Saxony, had founded a new school, hoping its scholastic prestige would rival and perhaps surpass the famous University of Leipzig. Perfect. But a good professor is just as hard to find. There's only one Erasmus, but Oxford has him. Only one John Eck, and he's at Ingolstadt. And our little Wittenberg University is just 11 years old. How can we attract the Erasmuses? Yeah, get them to stay here with us in Saxony. Your Grace, Wittenberg is already a center of biblical scholarship, thanks to your enlightened rule, and to such men as Dr. Karlstadt, Dr. Amstor. And yourself, good vicar? No, we're not ashamed of our university, far from it. We like to Leipzig yet. Now you shall have your new professor of theology. Duke Frederick, we have a man in mind who would be a credit to us all in... In scholarship, in knowledge of scripture. Ah, in scripture above all, yes. For I want a man to serve the castle church as a pastor, and the university as a professor, a learned man. For my people's minds, a pious man for my people's souls. There you have Frederick. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I like that guy. Uh, you, you get a couple things going on here. Uh, Frederick was an ambitious man. Mm-hmm. We, we often he, he gets called Frederick the Wise, Frederick the Pious. He he is wanting some power and prestige because he is a powerful man. He's one of the electors, sure. So he's one of the seven most powerful political figures. And some of that is if I'm one of these electors, I should have a good college in my town. This is kind of an awesome thing. That's because developing. why not? Yeah. So, I mean, there there is some good rivalry, so let's go find some good scholars. And add to that the fact that Luther, brilliant scholar, was also still problematic in the monasteries. Okay, right. And the idea is we need to keep him busy. Mm-hmm. And what do you have? You have Frederick Wani, a brilliant man, to be both a professor and a pastor. Right. And so the idea is we're going to make Martin too busy to fret. <laughs> and so basically they, they, they work out this uh, uh, call for him to go be the professor of Old Testament studies at Wittenberg. Okay. And so he's really put in the position of being an avant-garde scholar. And, and this is one thing that, that people can kind of neglect. You do have Frederick bringing out some of the great scholars of the day, Erasmus, mm-hmm. uh, Eck, mm-hmm. Luther was their intellectual equal. I right. mean, if you want to put into a 20th century context, he would be on the intellectual level of Tesla or Oppenheimer. I mean, or theologically, maybe an N.T. Wright or a um... oh, don't even do feel. <laughs> I mean, but I, no, and I say I say that I mean beyond. Beyond just theology, I mean, okay, so you're widening uh, uh, the uh, right of of men of learning, okay, of, okay, <clears throat> Hawking, um, okay, or I mean, it's just where where everyone because he he was well rounded and well versed in, so he was known as a man of learning. Gotcha, and he had respect in that. So sometimes we you get the who did Luther think he was to be bringing up and suggesting. Reform? 
he was one of the leading scholars of the day. Uh-huh. I mean, that, 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 that's sort of the job. I mean, it'd be like, who is Stephen Hawking to write a book on cosmology? Well, <laughs> that, that's kind of who you it, – it's not like I, Eric Brown, go and write a book and self-publish it on cosmology. Sure. No, I mean, this. so he is a, a doctor of the church. Uh-huh. I mean, this is a, a highly respected position that he has. And, I mean, e- even if – if none of the Reformation stuff takes place, you'd still have him being in a highly respected position. So think, don't think of it as, oh, he's just some bumpkin. Think of it almost as being the equivalent of being the the most famous professor at a major university, mm-hmm. the name prof at, at Michigan, the name prof at Northwestern. Okay. Not Harvard, not Yale. It's not Oxford. But it's still one of the major up and coming, and and really they're they're trying to be just as good as the Ivy League. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, like he's the guy you go study under. I mean, he's right. the the. Uh, well, they didn't have football teams then; they had good professors. Well, and, and Luther does attract people because again, he's one of the guys who can can do stuff with Hebrew and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he was respected and known as a scholar even before the stuff goes on with the Reformation. Okay. All right, or now. Is at least viewed as an up and coming bright star of scholarship. Now, is there anything else you want to say on that front before we get to Pope Leo the Tenth? Um, just that Luther ends up taking to the the college lifestyle like a duck to water <laughs> uh, because he does have a great love of learning. He does mm-hmm. have a love of teaching, and basically, he's put in a situation where his job is to. Immerse himself in the scriptures, mm-hmm. then talk to people about it. And I, I did see a little post over this week where someone goes, Luther was a campus minister, <laughs> or Martin Luther did campus. And, and really, that's what he does. So uh-huh. that's something that does stand up to the fore. Very cool. All right, we're going to get now to Pope Leo and his plan for St. Peter's. In Rome at this time, ruled Pope Leo X, a Medici, the second son of Lorenzo the Magnificent. His predecessor, Julius II, had laid the foundation stone of St. Peter's Cathedral, and the new pontiff was determined to make it the most magnificent church in Christendom. Pope Leo, a lover of the arts, exhausted the Vatican's wealth by his lavish expenditures. To replenish the treasury, Leo arranged for a wider sale of indulgences, conferred cardinals' hats upon men who could pay, and offered archbishoprics to the highest bidder. Would we call that church corruption, or is there a better term? Oh, I, I guess call in, it in some sense, it's it's just what you did as the Pope. Standard medieval operating procedure. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, one of the things that does come up is the question of how does the the church acquire property rights, and and of course, this is all not what you're supposed to do, and not why you do things. But uh, the the more egregious ones would be the selling of bishoprics. Uh-huh. And what you do have, especially at that time, is you start having a little bit more fudging. People who were not technically eligible but could make a donation okay. would be elected bishop. Or you even have people um, holding two at the same time, which you're not supposed to do, and things like that. Right. And that's also one of the things that Luther does complain about, but... We don't end up hearing as much about that. The one that comes up there to the foreground when we think of this is the idea of indulgences. Right. And indulgences were actually meant 
to be a kindness, if you think about it. Because think about it. Thomas, you're a busy man. You don't have time to take the six-month journey to get to Rome and back. You can't afford that. No, no, no. And so I'll tell you what. Instead of making you go all the way down to Rome mm-hmm. to, to, to get, get your 50,000 years off of purgatory or whatever, for the discount price of 1995, I will sell you an indulgence that'll do roughly the same thing. The indulgence I, comes to me. All right. Well, I mean, it, it was almost like the it was almost like the Sears Roebuck catalog of the day in, in the <laughs> sense that that it, it it brought that spiritual good to people. Now, now it just so happened that whenever the church needed to raise money, <laughs> we'd have a new one offered. There is a shipping and handling charge as well. Right. Right. So I mean, there there there's some some stuff that if you look at it, you could say, ah. But under that that system of thinking of of we want to get out of purgatory, indulgences were were seen as a a, a good thing. Yay! It's something we can get. That's a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. Except when they really start to get to be abused, and we really need to raise money, and we're using them as the the fundraiser. Gotcha. So now I have the next following. I'm conflating. <laughs> it's like. Um, Next two clips, and you tell me if we want to skip any of these because we have about seven minutes left, or sorry, five minutes left in this particular show. We've got Tetzel selling indulgences and Luther preaches against indulgences. What do you want to hear? Let's do Tetzel selling. All right. Now, my good people, this is no ordinary indulgence. This will build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And you will share in every mass that is said from now till doomsday. Here, in the Pope's own Latin, plenaria remissio omnium peccatorum. What does that mean? Full forgiveness for all sins, absolution from all punishments, no confession necessary, valid even for your loved ones in purgatory. For who would see his mother in flames when with a piece of silver he can set her free? Mommy! For as soon as the money Clinks in the chest. A soul flies up to heavenly rest. Now, now that actually is kind of a, a semi-accurate idea of, of what Tetzel is doing. He is peddling this. Mm-hmm. And it is a massive indulgence. Normally, you would just kind of get, like, time off of purgatory. This is the wipe the slate clean one. <laughs> Why? Because they need funds. Mm-hmm. And, and they ain't cheap. <laughs> well, and, and what this does do, I mean, they're popular. It also builds up a lot of political ill will mm-hmm. in in Germany. Well, that makes sense. You don't have people wanting to come see your relics and pay to see your museum anymore right Are, now, right? They're, they're not paying for your stuff. And moreover, where is that money going? Is it staying in your area? It or is it? not local in any sense. It is establishing room. a trade deficit mm-hmm. and hurting the local economy. So, I mean, there is a, a political aspect. I mean, if you if you if you preach against the indulgences, especially that one, there's going to be 
kind of some good rah-rah patriotic, that sounds good too, right. which does come up. There is a good political a good political aspect of what goes on with the Reformation. So, Man. Well, how much time do we have left now? Uh, we've got about just enough time to play Luther preaching against them, I think, as far as indulgences goes. Oh, yeah, or, play it. All right. But indulgences must be dispensed with authority and rightly so. Therefore, when indulgences are abused, peddled, bartered, sold, this is not salvation. This is damnation of souls. And I do not refer to Tetzel alone. Well, I know that our own good prince, Duke Frederick, has long held a special indulgence for this castle church. But God is no respecter of persons, and we must serve God, not man. Therefore, my people, I tell you, our Lord Jesus Christ, by coming on earth, by suffering and dying, has already paid for our salvation forever. How then can any mortal man, monk, prince, or pope extort a further payment? My beloved, you cannot buy God's mercy. Amen. Luther at that time, and again, that, that overplays Luther just a touch. <laughs> he didn't mind indulgences. He wasn't, he hadn't rejected the idea of purgatory and stuff like that yet. Okay. What he rejected and was hard on was the profiteering off of it, mm. was the idea of, of the indifferent, the unspiritual approach to it. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with an indulgence if it is a spiritual thing, at least at that time. There's nothing wrong with, with the relics if it is a spiritual thing, but when you just make it to be a profiteering thing, what have you done? You've you've cheapened them, you've sullied them, you you've you've turned away the point. And he even acknowledges in the, the yeah, the Pope can do whatever indulgence he want. He's the Pope. But but look at this profiteering. That's what's not good. And that's what gets him in trouble because he calls everything on profiteering. Okay. So All right. We've reached the halfway mark on the Reformation special. Thank you for tuning in to the Gospel to Boldly podcast once again. And uh, we now turn to part two of our Reformation special Gospel Boldly feature here. Here we go. When last we, we left our uh, intrepid hero, Martin Luther, uh, he was just beginning to preach denouncing the sale of indulgences. Mm -hmm. uh, what has arisen is uh, basically a giant fundraiser for building St. Peter's Basilica, so let's sell things to crazy Germans and they'll be happy and everyone will enjoy it and we'll all make money, except, well, the powers that be in Germany realize this is kind of bad, so... <laughs> Yeah, losing money on the whole deal, not making people happy. It's just so. But uh, what what you have is you you find this to be very uh, a problematic thing. In fact, uh, Frederick the Wise did not allow Tetzel in his territory. That's true. The movie did bring that up. But the problem was his territory was right on the edge of another territory that did, and Tetzel sets up camp on the riverbank. <laughs> so basically, people are going across the bank, and so 
this is becoming a problem. And Luther does want to address it. And uh, how does he address it, Thomas? Uh, the 95 Theses. Yeah, do you have Memory the, serves. Yeah, let, let's do the clip. Wittenberg, the eve of All Saints Day, October 31st, 1517. Martin Luther was scarcely noticed as he passed by those waiting to worship before the relics about to be displayed in the castle church. Nailing a notice to the door of the church was not unusual, for this was the customary place to post announcements of both university and public events. Among those waiting to be forgiven and blessed, none could know that this document would become one of the most widely read in all history. And that, of course, is the nailing of the famous 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Mm -hmm. And again, one of the things that does come up is just how mundane an activity this was. Mm -hmm. Um, I think almost a better way to think of it would be, imagine you put an outline for a paper you're writing on your department bulletin board at your college. I mean, that's not a major act of defiance. Right. And what would happen was, basically, if you had something you wanted to let other people see and think about and discuss, you'd go put it on the church door. I mean, that that was just sort of the... Their theses, their things to be discussed and talked that, about. That was your kinko. She didn't go and make copies of things and hand it out to the other guy. She, you, you posted it. And, right. Okay. I mean, even, even when you think about that, we still today use that idea for, like, our blogging stuff of... Mm-hmm posting right that's what you're doing you are posting the stuff on the wall and it was not meant to be defiant it was written in latin so again who all can read it mainly just the educated and it was meant to be kind of nice and quiet Mm -hmm. now thomas why did it not stay nice and quiet because of what happens in our next clip oh thus did martin luther put forth his 95 theses intended to be read and debated only by scholars. Word of their content created an immediate demand for more and more reprints. Printers had the theses translated into the language of the people. Within weeks, they were the talk of all Germany. Within months, all Christendom was on fire. Back then, there was no such thing as copyright. <laughs> I mean, because really, it's sort of like the old, it's the Wild West of printing. Uh-huh. And basically, you can you can print up whatever you want. Basically, the only thing is you're not supposed to falsify it. You're right. supposed to do an honest copy because you're, you're viewed as a, a copyist. So, yeah, you, you make a faithful copy. Sure. And part of being a faithful copy could be translating things faithfully. And what happens is you have your printers realizing this is kind of a hot topic, hot button. It's the first thing really in history to go viral. <laughs> I mean, if you want to think about in those terms. I love that. That's great. But really, it, it, is the, it, it becomes a, a bestseller uh-huh. because basically it, it, it calls out the, the – 
profiteering that's going on. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, I mean, there's this political overtone. There's this religious overtone. And, and even though Luther isn't fully what we'd almost say is Lutheran yet, he doesn't have a lot of the, the grateful ideas that we, we would come to expect. He is seeing that there needs to be more of a focus on forgiveness of God's mercy, that that's something that needs to be brought up, that that is being washed out of the picture when you just buy and sell forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ becomes unnecessary for that. And like, no, 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 we, we need Christ in here somewhere. He's not expecting the 95 Theses to be that controversial. Oh, yeah, sure, we'll talk, we'll go back and forth. But what happens is they go viral. But more than that, as they go and spread, the Roman hierarchy kind of panics. Mm-hmm. Because, again, remember, this is a day and age where you're, you're not used to having to deal with public opinion. Or or how, how do you deal with something spreading like wildfire? You don't have the ability to spin. And so basically when it happens, they freak out and, and basically get people who attack Luther. I mean, hard. Right. Uh, chief of those being John Eck, who, again, was a, a respected scholar. Luther kind of trounces later on. But, <laughs> but you have this this big, firm, visceral reaction against it from the, the powers that be, or a lot of them at least. Mm-hmm. And it's really in response to that visceral reaction that thrusts Luther into much more and more research that really kicks up the the discovery, the the idea, the the formulation of a lot of the things that we think of as classic Luther. Okay. So really, it, it's not so much the ninety five theses that kick off the Reformation. Uh-huh. In many ways, it's Luther looking and saying, "Okay, why did this hurt so much when I poked it?" Right. The wounded and dog that, yelps loudest. Right. Right. Okay. And, and that's what drives the focus and go. Well, what really is going on here? Mm-hmm. So it, the the so much it's really like lancing a boil from that point, just, right? And well, what comes out and what happens is you do have a over the course of the next few years, as Luther is engaging the response to this uh-huh. and seeing the theology, the arguments that are being used against him, against right. what he's brought, brought up is just kind of simple, obvious points. That's where he sees the the depth of the errors and in. In contrast to those errors, what the scripture says. That's where the the truth of scripture gets highlighted. Gotcha. Just so. really brings everything out into relief as he goes into that. Which, you know, I've, I've noticed in, in debates with various um, schools of thought, we'll say, over just in my lifetime, how often that is the case where, where you say something that causes somebody else to prickle. And then in the ensuing debate, everybody's position is brought in high relief all of a sudden. And there's those, those, those divisions or those, um, the, the differences in the ideas are really made to stand out. It really is almost an apologetic endeavor, Thomas. It it kind of is. I'm loving it. So, I mean, but, but that's what you have. You have this, this, uh, Luther, uh, it gets referred to as this tower experience where, where, um, Basically, the the consternation over all this stuff really gets him focusing, and that's where he ends up making the the you know we can do what the church fathers have done, where we can talk about the righteousness of God is not just that He is holy and perfect, but the mm-hmm. righteousness of God is that He declares man forgiven on account of Christ, mm-hmm. that He shows He is righteous in not just condemnation, but chiefly in 
forgiveness Mm -hmm. and forgiving on account of Christ. Now, does that come up too, where you have Christ as the intermediary? Paul says, obviously there's one intermediary between God and man, man, Christ Jesus, where we have the Pope in this case being presented as that intermediary and then all the other priests and whatnot. Well, again, even, even with that, you had the Pope was the vicar of Christ. I, I'm at, I, I even say something very similar on Sunday morning. Uh-huh. In the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. Sure. But the problem is you had a shift to where instead of being in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you your sin. Uh-huh. It became, I offer you this excellent, excellent, fine deal. <laughs> and if you just pass 20 bucks, we can, we, we can work something out. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's the big disconnect. Gotcha. Okay. That, that really ends up firing because it's like, well, no, of course the, the, the Pope, of course the clergy should offer remission of sins. Duh, duh, that's our job. But, but why is there such a fight on this? We're not really talking about remission of sin. Mm-hmm. The theology is being focused on power, on works, on on personal merit, not on Christ. Okay. Not on dispensing the gifts of Christ. And that's where things really start to flow. So as Luther says at one point in the movie, um, you know, if, if the Pope can give indulgences and grant people, you know, flying out of purgatory, why doesn't he just do it out of love? Why does he do it for money? Is right. that- that's, that's actually part that comes up in the 95 themes. Leads. It was kind of offhanded. Uh-huh. And it was sort of meant to be a, a thinking point. Well, why doesn't he? Because you, you need people to be thinking about Christ. Right. And that's the expected answer. And then that expected answer doesn't come. They complain about it. Oh. It's like, okay, maybe that's not the expected answer. What, what's going on here? Gotcha. So it ends up being the, 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 the softball question that they swing and miss. And, oh, whoa. Let, let's think about this through more. Okay. And, uh, okay. What, what's the next thing you have as a clip going to Leipzig. All right. What, what happens is that happens in, I believe 1519. So mm-hmm. you have basically 18 months go on between that. And, and Luther is, formulating his ideas and he he discusses things with the various augustinians with the the faculty at wittenberg and basically things develop and he begins to crystallize this idea that we really need to be focused on the work of christ Mm -hmm. that that god becomes man that he suffers and dies for our salvation for the forgiveness of our sins that's a focus we've not paid enough attention to okay so that becomes his point and he really does this Really, in in two books, Galatians and Romans, mm-hmm. that that's where Paul hammers these ideas more so clearly than any other place, and that's where he spends most of his focus. Okay. Now, eventually, when he does get summoned to Leipzig, um, that's not actually him that's summoned. Is that right? It's one of his co-faculty that gets summoned, and Luther's, at least in the movie, somewhat put off by this. <laughs> um, Luther was not the senior faculty member mm-hmm. um, already there at, at Wittenberg University was uh, Karlstadt, right. who, who was a very respected one. And this was meant to be a, a debate between the universities. It wasn't meant to be a personal thing. More of an intramural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. A- and so basically the idea is you let the senior professors do the debating and, and the other ones can show up and kind of help out. And while Karlstadt is on board... He doesn't get things as 
well. In fact, uh, later on in the Reformation, Karlstadt becomes very problematic. He ends up going off into various errors. He becomes Ooh. one of the leaders of the radical Reformation, the, the throw the baby out with the bathwater sort of thing. Really? Yeah. Uh, we, we don't have clips through to there, but in fact, uh, jumping ahead slightly, uh-huh. uh, after the Diet of Worms, Luther will be declared an outlaw and Duke uh, Frederick kidnaps him and hides him. Right. And that's where he goes off and he translates scripture while he's in hiding. What draws him back out of hiding is Karlstadt is running things so terribly and things are going so poorly in Wittenberg that Luther says, I don't care if they kill me. I've got to put a stop to this. Okay. And comes back and preaches a bunch of sermons starting in Lent, the the, the Invocabit sermons. So, gotcha. Yeah. So Karlstadt... Double A talent not quite working in the big leagues. Right. So, well, let, let, <laughs> let's look at Leipzig. Okay. Martin Luther journeyed to hostile Leipzig in the company of his two most ardent supporters, Andreas Karlstadt, learned but impetuous, and Philip Melanchthon, a young scholar destined to become one of the foremost leaders of the Reformation. It was a rude game. There you go. And now, do you have any clips from that debate? I do not from Karlstadt versus Eck, but I do when, of course, when they get there, they get to the university where I believe John Huss was burned at the stake. Is that right? Or somewhere in that area? Close. Leipzig is further south, and, and Huss is from what we think of today as, as Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. Okay. And Leipzig is further south, so you have much more of, of an influence of Jan Huss. Now, who was John Huss? Um, this is goes back to when I was in junior high learning my Reformation history. So I'm going to have to pass on that. He was, a, I mean, he was a early reformer who right. got essentially burnt at the stake because of his ideas. Really? That's all um, I know. He, he basically wanted communion in both kinds, was a very mo- relatively mild reformer, but, but stood up to things that he thought was wrong. And he got called to the Council of Constance in 1415 mm-hmm. under the, the Code of Safe Conduct. Okay. And they there declared him a heretic and burned him oh, because good. you don't have to keep your word to a heretic. <laughs> so <laughs> bear, that, bear that in mind. I mean, the, the, the threat of being declared a heretic mm-hmm. is... Death. Right. I mean, that, that, that's a bad thing. And that connection with Huss comes up a lot in the movie, just as they're going. You know, one of the fears is that they're going to try and associate Luther with Huss. It, it, it's sort of tarring and feathering you with, uh, with the name of a villain. It, it sort of be like, it's almost the equivalent of, this political figure is like Hitler. Uh-huh. I, I mean, it, it, it's just the, oh, that sticks. And da, 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 so. Right. Okay. So here is, uh, I guess... To, to introduce it, um, Huss debates with Karlstadt. Luther it, debates. And with, then, uh, Eck, or, sorry, Eck, Eck debates. Right, with Eck Karlstadt. debates with Karlstadt. Um, that goes about as well as I guess it could be expected to go. Luther didn't expect it to go well. <laughs> Luther keeps uh, helping Karlstadt and basically Eck says, <laughs> get out of the way, Karlstadt. Let me take on Luther. Because that's what Eck wants to do. He, uh-huh. He's the, the main, we're going to butt heads. Right. And so that's where we come into this clip here. A little bit of throwdown. I repeat, it was not upon St. Peter that Christ founded the church, but upon himself. But my dear doctor, many authorities disagree with you. Capectus, Scotus, Peter Lombard, for instance. Hmm, to say nothing of Cyprian and Nazianzus. Yes, doctor, they do. But my authority disagrees with all of them. And who is that authority? St. Paul. 
For no other foundation can man lay than that which is laid, even Jesus Christ. A little bit of smackdown, in my opinion. <laughs> well, and this is really what what Luther does, and this is something that that is part of the Augustinian heritage too. Mm-hmm. Saint Augustine really did have a lot of focus on on Paul, more so than than some of the other church fathers, mm-hmm. uh, partially because his big thing was he was debating amongst others. Uh, Pelagians, uh-huh. your, your free will guys. So who are you going to go to on that? You're going to go to Paul. I mean, now, as that debate kind of goes by the wayside as, um, well, kind of the church becomes semi-Pelagian anyway, the focus on Paul has shifted off. So Luther comes back swinging Paul like it's a, a two-by-four <laughs> and, and basically bringing out all this Pauline we're determined to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. In mm-hmm. fact, at this time, Luther ends up coming up with the uh, the phrase, the cross alone is our theology. Mm-hmm. That everything drives to the cross, and if you aren't driving to the cross, you've missed the point. You've missed the boat. Right. You're, 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 you lost the central idea of the scriptures. And that's really what develops. Everything needs to drive to Christ and him crucified. That's how Paul speaks. That's really how we need to be speaking. Mm-hmm. I just love this idea of ultimate authority, too, where you have the appeal to, and it's not necessarily an, an irrational or um, an appeal that shouldn't be made, the appeal to those who have gone before, saints, <laughs> at least in the Protestant understanding of saints, who have passed on before, who had their ideas and saying, this is how they understood this, that, and the other thing. But ultimately, Luther comes back with, yeah, well, I mean, Paul's clear testimony completely contradicts that. Let's go back to the text. Right. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> well, and this is one of the things where it's it, an understanding that my own personal opinion can be off. Mm-hmm. And even if I give an off opinion and, and later people really repeat it and parrot it, that doesn't make it any more right. Right. And so the question becomes, what do the scriptures say? That that has to be the battleground. That has to be where we base our argument. All the other guys are secondary. I mean, even in history, you have this idea now of, of the difference between a primary source and a secondary source. Right. You have the document and then other people commentating. And yet you use the secondary sources, but if they conflict with the primary vor- source, you, 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 you skewer them. You mm-hmm. don't use them to support. Right. So our next clip is, again, from the same debate where there's a little bit more antagonistic back and forth. But, Doctor, these attacks upon the Pope cannot help but bring disunity upon the Church. That is not my intention. But the effect is the same as if it were. In fact, it is common knowledge that your doctrines are approved by those who have already split the Church. Name them. The followers of us. The Hussites are wrong. But I confess, I find much that is acceptable to Christ among their doctrines. Such as? Such as this. There is only one universal church. Or this. It is not necessary for salvation to be subject to a Roman pope. What, doctor? That is the heart of the heresy. That is exactly what has said. It does not matter who said it, it is the truth. (laughs) Martin Luther, do you think you are the only one who knows the truth? I will tell you what I think. I have the right to believe freely, to be a slave to no man's authority, 
to confess what appears to me to be true, whether it is proved or disapproved, whether it is spoken by Catholic or by heretic. Then you deny the authority of the Pope. In matters of faith, I think that neither council nor Pope nor any man has power over my conscience. And where they disagree with scripture, I deny Pope and council and all. A simple layman armed with scripture is greater than the mightiest pope without it. Heresy, Dr. Luther! Heresy! Heresy! So be it. It is still the truth. Yeah. Now, one note there, too, just about conscience, because when we, if I say conscience, what do you think of? My own internal little Jiminy Cricket that, <laughs> that, that that's <laughs> not me things. That that's not quite the idea of conscience. There, mm-hmm. it is your your awareness of what is right and true. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, if if the scriptures say it's Christ, and someone else says no, you've got to you've got to respect Christ and give Thomas pats on the back. <laughs> well, no, you're, you're not bound by that. You're not bound by, you're only bound by the awareness that is caused by, by scripture, by the Holy spirit working. That's the idea. So it's not such, it's not quite as independent as we think of it, but rather it's, it's focused upon the word of God much more so than we are inclined to hear. Right. And I guess we hear it through the American ears of me, myself and I individuality, right. go, go, go type of idea. But rather he's saying the point is you can't say I'm in a position of authority. Therefore, therefore ignore what the scriptures say and rather just do what I say. You, you can't do that. I, I'm bound to my, my, my awareness, my con science my my with knowledge of things is shaped by the word of god that's why the layman with scripture is more authoritative than than the pope without because it's the scriptures that are the clear authority okay and which is something that you have people argue for out all the time the hedge that had come up was well yes the scriptures are authoritative but we need the church to actually interpret them. <laughs> right. And so Luther's saying, well, no, because what you're having there is you're having interpretations that have nothing to do with what the scriptures say. And in fact, some places flat out contradict the scriptures. What do the scriptures say? Okay. Very cool. Now, our next clip is excommunication. Do you want to make any comments about... We'll talk a little bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Got it, got it. Go for okay. it. Now... As you can, as you heard in that thing, you you get the ratcheting up of of the stakes here. Yes, and what happens is, especially after the debates with Eck, and you get a lot of pamphlet writing back and forth between them. Uh-huh. In fifteen twenty, Luther engages on a great year of of writing, and he basically writes three great documents. The first of these is the Babylonian captivity of the church. Okay. And in that, he basically goes over the the sacramental system of Rome. He looks at the seven sacraments and basically says, here's where they do things that are abusive. Here's where they mess up. Great thing to read. Go read it. Some of it can be a little bit confusing just because it deals with hardcore medieval theology. Right. But when Luther says, here's what the scriptures teach, gorgeous. Okay. The next one was to the German nobility. And this is where you get a lot of the political stuff. You have stonewalling from the church. 
And Luther basically says, all right, German nobles, you are the leaders in your lands and your places. God has given you authority. You need to see that the church gets reformed. So basically it is the, the call for, for Christian leaders to take a stand, to not be pushed around, to not be bullied around. Right on. Which is really kind of important because you need the political backing because the church of the church in Rome was exercising political authority. Mm -hmm. And then the third one, which is interesting, it, it's the one that doesn't even get named in the next scene or held up, is on the freedom of a Christian. Okay. And this is sort of Luther's last ditch attempt at peace. Okay. He writes it to the Pope, dedicates it to him, and he says, you know, I don't have any problem with you, Pope. Uh, I know you're surrounded by a bunch of uh, hanger honors and flatters who are causing consternation. So I will write something to you so that you can see that I'm not doing anything crazy. Mm -hmm. And don't listen to your toadies because they're stupid. And basically says that as a Christian, we have freedom. And that is we are perfectly free, not bound by anything because we're forgiven by Christ. But at the same time, we're also perfectly dutiful servants bound by Christ to show love to one another. Mm -hmm. so, so at the same time, a Christian is completely free, but he's also bound to love the neighbor. That That's that tension we have in our life. That's the, the paradox of, of the Christian faith. So that we are, are free from all demands when Thomas says, I must jump through hoop X, Y, and Z. No, that doesn't apply. I'm saved by grace through faith. But as I am a Christian, I am to live in love and serve Thomas in all things. So, and we'll see how it's received when we get back from the break. <laughs> all right. Now, uh, so you have Luther do this writing in 1520, mm -hmm. and the question is, what would be the reaction? I mean, because things are ratcheting up. Right. Is Rome going to keep on pushing? Is there going to be some reform? Is there going to be some, some reconciliation attempts? Let's find out. Okay. One moment. The time to keep silent has passed. And the time to speak has come. The nobility of our land must set itself against the Pope as a common enemy and destroyer. We have the name of empire, but the Pope is all that is ours. Let him give us back our liberty, honor, body, and soul. And that, Your Holiness, is mild compared with this. That was German nobility of the Pope. Freedom from the tyranny of Rome. Babylon captivity of the church. Every man his own priest before God. Freedom of a Christian. Which gets smacked to the floor. Yeah. Now we shall do some writing. 
Draw up a condemnation of this man. Says the Pope. We shall see how his faith stands up against a papal decree. Your Holiness, we've presumed to prepare a draft. Just had it handy. The curio was Exerge Domine. Arise, O Lord, and judge thy cause. A wild boar invades thy vineyards. Arise, O Peter. Arise, O Paul. Arise, ye saints. Arise, thou church universal. We can no longer suffer this serpent to creep through the fields of the Lord. The books of Martin Luther containing his errors are to be sought out and burned by the Inquisitor. As for Martin Luther himself, dear God, what office of paternal love have we omitted to recall him from his errors? Now, therefore, we give him 60 days to retract his writings. And failing such retraction, he shall stand under our anathema and excommunication. So you have a little montage of different people reading the papal decree. <laughs> now, what's interesting is there are transit times. So basically, Luther gets to like one day left to recant legally. Oh, crap. It's not, it wasn't 60 <laughs> days upon receipt. It was 60 days from issuance and Ooh, okay. delayed in the mail. I mean, so it, it really is a kind like of a, a jury summons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's sort of like the hood's job. Oh, dear. Or, well, one getting closer. Yeah. But basically, the, the gauntlet then gets thrown down. You're going to shut it or we're saying you're out. You're excommunicated. Mm -hmm. and, and again, remember, that actually has some legal standing. If you are excommunicated from the church, you are outside many of the protections of law, mm -hmm. or at least you're open to be it. Basically, if your your prince is wanting to play nice to the powers that be and you're excommunicated, what is your prince going to do? Hand you over. Yeah. And so this is really also where that political stuff is going to be coming in as well, because what happens is Frederick the Wise defends luther nice and this is actually Love that guy. Th this is actually one of the great heroic things of the reformation because remember frederick had a massive collection of relics the reformation really does bring him quite a bit of personal loss i mean he uh -huh. he loses a lot of income but but he hears what luther teaches and he believes and so basically at, at great personal loss great political and financial cost he protects luther he follows along and so we'll hear what luther's response is to the uh the the, the papal bull coming right up i think oh technical there <laughs> wittenberg the night of december 10th 1520 room Because you have destroyed the truth of God, let God destroy you in these flames. There's the pitches in the fire. Yep. And he burns the papal bull. <laughs> and what you do get there is they they show this really well in the movie with the the following scene yeah is you do get luther always writing especially through the reformation through the 20s especially a, a fine line 
of of standing up to that which is wrong, but on the other hand, being surrounded by people who want to go further, who want to do more, who who take who want to take out their anger at the abuse and go overboard. Right. So you have in some way Luther being the the defiant one, but also the one who is putting the brake on other people or trying to put the brake on other people. So he's so, calling people out, but he's being the restrainer on those who would take right. license at that. Well, it, it, it let us say uh, Seth has been picking on you, your brother Seth. Okay. And I come out and I call down Seth and uh-huh. say, you need to stop that. But then I see you coming up and wanting to, to punch him back. And I, I, I know, Thomas, you don't get to deck him back. Okay, right. So he, he's really trying to be in the middle and, and restraining those who would want to overreact or do wickedness, who would want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. Gotcha. So, I mean, he really is in the middle on this. Right. So Very good. Um, what happens after that is this causes political problems. Oh, of course. Because what happens when you have a known excommunicated guy teaching at a university and, and what what's going on? And the university pastor, for that matter, at the time, right? So basically, the solution is a diet is called. And a diet was the, the official gathering of all the lords in Germany mm-hmm. under the auspices of the Holy Roman Emperor, at this time Charles V. And basically, he summons the folks to to uh, the town of Worms. It sounds better if you say it with the, the, the German, <laughs> right. other than saying worms, because diet of worms sounds really, really funny in English. You know, one of the vicars at Trinity Lutheran uh, dressed up for Halloween one year uh, carrying a platter of gummy worms, and he was the diet of worms. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was great. That's terrible. But but so basically you have this – Luther gets summoned to this giant – basically be, like, be almost like a congressional hearing mm-hmm. called before Congress. Okay. Where, where he is under the impression that basically everything that's gone on is going to come on up. So this is his chance to, to set the record straight, to, to convince other political leaders as well. This is going to be a good thing. Although it is a dangerous thing because if it goes badly – well, what happens to you if things go badly when you're testifying on the floor of Congress? Well, it can end up... I mean, if as long as you're a citizen, I suppose you might get a trial, but... <laughs> jail. Yeah. Jail. Bad, bad, bad stuff. So, All right. Well, and let's see how it goes next. I summon him for a trial, yet he comes like a conqueror. Are you certain you haven't made a mistake? Your Majesty, how he enters is of no importance. How he answers is. We must give him no opportunity for speeches. Will Your Majesty approve our procedure of uh, interrogation? You have his books? Yes, Your Majesty. All of them. Say nothing until you are questioned. 
Martin Luther, his sacred and invincible majesty has cited you before his throne to answer certain questions. Two in number, and only two. The first question, do you admit these are your writings? Yes, they are mine. His Imperial Majesty's second question then is, will you, Martin Luther, persist in what you have written? Or are you prepared to retract these writings and the beliefs they contain? Most gracious Emperor, Princes, Lords, I came here prepared for debate, not for interrogation. Dr. Luther, reply to the question. Will you or will you not recant what you have written? I do not understand this procedure. Recant? Am I not to be heard? You have heard His Majesty's question. He is waiting for your answer. My answer? You should not ask me to deny in one moment the work of many years. Dr. Luther! Therefore, most gracious majesty, I beg, give me time. Give me more time. His gracious majesty grants your request. You will return to this same place tomorrow. Prepare to answer. And the hose job kicks <laughs> in. It, it really is one of the, the the great political moves because the the fear is if Luther's allowed to speak, he is a good orator. He's a great speaker. He he has a good way with words. Mm-hmm. Is he going to start convincing people? And that's not what. The emperor wants. Mm-hmm. He wants this put to bed. Right. Because what happens if Luther confisms a bunch of people? Suddenly you have the Holy Roman Empire set against Rome. That's bad. Mm-hmm. Especially as the emperor has lands outside of the Holy Roman Emperor, Holy, Holy Roman Empire that he also has to keep under control. So it's just, no, no, we're going to put this to bed. How's the simplest way? We're going to put Luther in a corner. Not to mention the fact that I believe at this point, if I'm not mistaken, the Turks were kind of knocking on their doors. This as well, is a right? little early is it for early? that. I mean, but but they're still down to the southeast where you, you're kind of worried about them, but they're not directly aggressively moving yet. Okay. That happens within the decade, though. Gotcha. So other things coming down the pike. <laughs> and so, so what you do is basically you make them just answer t- two yes or no questions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, this, this is one of the things is where... Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? <laughs> you, if you're doing debate, ask yes or no questions mm-hmm. because that way you don't give them the opportunity to grandstand and put the things on their term. And make them loaded too. Like, right. have you stopped beating your wife yet? Yes or no? Well, and so, well, it becomes a matter of we're just going to have you admit yay or nay, and that'll be it. Mm -hmm. Because, again, from the legal perspective, the Pope has already declared these things are worthy of excommunication. Therefore, we don't really need to debate them, which isn't quite the idea of what Luther thought was going to be able to happen. Right. And so, basically, they, they set it up as to be the great... Here's your chance to back out. 
And Luther asked for time. Let me think about this. Give, give me time to think about it. All right, we'll give you a day. <laughs> and so Luther basically has this this night of, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Do I do I back down? Because I mean, yeah, even though he was defiant and burned the papal bull, it's kind of easy to do that when you're you're right there with your 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 archbishop, your not archbishop, your your prince your your king standing right there who's got your back right it's another thing when you're standing before the emperor in foreign territory (laughs) uh and so i mean this is really where the rubber meets the road do i pull out or do i put all my chips on the table knowing that if i put all my chips on the table there's a good chance i'll never make it back to wittenberg alive right and so what shall I do? Dr. Luther! Yesterday you admitted these writings were yours. Will you tell us now? Do you persist in what you have written here? Or are you prepared to retract these writings and the beliefs they contain? I ask pardon if I lack the manners that befit this court. I was not brought up in king's palaces, but in the seclusion of a cloister. I am asked to retract these writings but they are of different kinds. In some, I discuss faith and good works. If I were to retract these, I should be denying accepted Christian truths. In others, I attack popery and assail men who have afflicted the Christian world and ruined the bodies and souls of other men. If I were to retract those, I should be like a cloak that covers evil. Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, noble lords, I am only a man and not God. But I must defend myself as did Jesus Christ when he said, as I say now, if I have spoken evil, bear witness against me. Martin Luther, you have not yet answered the question. Give us a simple answer. Will you recant or will you not? You ask for a simple answer. Here it is. Unless you can convince me by scripture and not by popes or councils who have often contradicted each other, unless I am so convinced that I am wrong, I am bound to my beliefs by the texts of the Bible. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Therefore, I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. 
I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And I won't back down. No, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. That Is that Bon Jovi? Tom, Tom Petty. Tom him. Petty. Right. <laughs> bon Jovi has a song kind of like that. Oh, it's my life. It's nothing like that. Never mind. Bon Jovi is Catholic. Come on. <laughs> of course, I have no idea what Tom Petty is. But yeah, but, but no, you have Luther doing his... And he tries to dodge. He tries to... Let, let's talk about the issues. I mean, there are things I've written here that no one's has any problems with. I, right. I can't recant those. I mean, let, let's at least talk about what we want to recant. No, we're not doing that. What you're going to do? So finally he says, no, I can't. Here I stand. And no, did you know how he talked about how his con- my conscience is bound by scripture? Mm-hmm. So again, it's not just, I, I, I feel happy I'm going to do this. It, it, <laughs> this is what the scriptures say. They have taught me. They have told me what I think. Because it's not my heart and my feelings that, that shape me. Right. But what does the, what do the scriptures say? That's where I'm bound. And as Luther says that, he thinks he's a dead man. D- dead man walking. Because mm-hmm. what happens when you are someone who has been excommunicated and you flip everyone the bird? You burn. Mm-hmm. Except for one thing. Luther's prince is an elector. One of the mm-hmm. seven most powerful men. Right. And basically he arranges to say, all right, let Luther be declared an outlaw, mm-hmm. but uh, we'll, we'll let him go here. Don't don't execute him. He'll just be an outlaw. And that means, sure, anyone who wants to can kill him. So let's face it, he's kind of going to be fair game. That's the deal that gets struck. Okay. And so Luther heads on his way back. And Frederick the Wise arranges for him to be kidnapped. So basically, Frederick, in a brilliant move, <laughs> basically says, no, let this guy go. He'll be taken care of. We don't need to, we don't need to do anything where we break our idea of safe conduct. Uh-huh. We'll let him go back safely. We won't raise a hand against him. You won't do anything, Emperor. You, your hands will be clean. I'm sure someone will take care of business. Right. And they kidnap him. And basically, wow. he goes into hiding for almost two years. Yeah, is it almost, almost, well, yeah, almost two full years. Mm-hmm. Uh, goes to the Wartburg Castle, and there he is, uh, is known as, I believe it's uh, Knight George, Sir George. Okay. Basically, takes on another identity. He's in the witness pers- protection program for. <laughs> Basically, yes. And there he does a, a lot of in depth theology work. And there he also is, that's where he's at, when he translates the New Testament into German. Oh. Okay. So that's sort of his, his big project. And does he dedicate that to Frederick? Mm hmm. And while he's there, he's getting things back and forth between what's going on at Wittenberg. Mm-hmm. And basically, there, Karlstadt and Melanchthon are, are running things. And Karlstadt is doing things poorly mm-hmm. um, and tries to bring forth lots of actual practical reforms much more quickly. Like, we're going to start doing everything in English instead of Latin. And guess what? You're going to commune in both kinds now, even though prior to that, people, the lady only got the host, the, the Lord's body. Mm-hmm. No, you're going to drink in. And basically trying to force all these idealized reforms on people. Right. And it goes chaotic. In fact, you get Wittenberg becomes the hotbed of almost every crackpot in the, the universe. Oh, wow. And, and 
Karlstadt kind of goes along with it, and Melanchthon can't keep things under control. Because uh-huh. he, he's very young and green at this point, and just like, ah! <laughs> the, the, And so eventually Luther comes back and ends up driving out Karlstadt. Okay. Karlstadt ends up leaving. Um, my, my favorite response with uh, Luther when he comes back is there are people who have descended upon Wittenberg known as the Zwickau prophets. And, and their basic thing is, well, we have the Holy Spirit. We're prophesying. We're giving new revelation. Because, look, we're free of the authority of the Pope, so we say do this. Okay, yeah. And so it's that that, that other opposite ditch. Right. And uh, Luther writes uh, a pamphlet against the heavenly prophets, making fun of their title. I love it. And uh, he, he notes in there, you say you ha- you say, but we have the Holy Spirit, and I say yes. You have swallowed him feathers and all. I mean, just, <laughs> it's very. But it, but he goes about starting out a gradual, tempered reform. In 1523, he does a reform of the liturgy, mm-hmm. but he keeps it in Latin. Okay, because that's what people are used to hearing. Of course, you have the German mass come out in 1526, I believe. So three years later. Okay. But you have these these measured reforms, and over the course of the the next seven years, you really have the the nuts and bolts of of how this reform takes place. Uh, he and Melanchthon go on a tour of the surrounding area just to see what what folks know, and he realizes they don't know anything. So in fifteen twenty seven, he write starts to write the uh, the small catechism. Uh-huh. Then he goes around and realizes the preachers don't know how to preach stuff. So he writes the large catechism. Here's what you can preach on these topics. So really for the next decade, you have a a kind of a circling of the wagons. And it's a wild decade. Uh, In 1525, you have the German peasants revolt, where all across Germany, you have bands of peasants that rise up and and down with authority. We're going to kill off our feudal lords. Mm -hmm. And in a move that surprises a lot of people, Luther says, all right, lords, it's your job to put them down. They're rabid dogs. Ooh, Why? Harsh. <laughs> Why? Well, they're threatening their neighbor. Okay. This is not about I'm following the word of God. This is you're killing and burning. No, they're, they're, they're rebels. Put them down. Uh-huh. And so you have Luther always kind of in this, this middle saying, look, we're to be bound by scripture. We're, we're free from tyranny, but that doesn't mean we go and fall into chaos on the other hand. So, right. so really you have that balancing act. Okay. So, Do you have any other just questions about where things go from there or what have you? Yes. First one. Can you lean into the microphone? <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. Was I quiet? <laughs> yes. You're very quiet there. Um, I'm so, slouching back in my chair. <laughs> it's, it's getting... We're almost done. Um, so... From this point forward, we eventually get a small called articles uh, and then the Augsburg Confession. Before Augsburg after? Confession first okay. in 1530. Luther's not allowed to go to that because it's actually in Augsburg, which is south out of the Lutheran territory. So he can't show up because he'd be killed. Cause, right. Because he's an outlaw. So Melanchthon represents. Melanchthon goes and basically writes and the Lutheran princes defend the Lutheran faith. Okay. And that's the 1530. That's the, the no, we're not going to just play ball. We're doing so. So then uh, Luther, one of the things that he kept doing was he kept calling for a a church council. Let's have a a united council and we'll all get together and we'll hash this out like theologians. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like one's going to be called in Mantua in 1537. Okay. And Luther gets sick. 
Moreover, he's not, he's not going to be able to go to it anyway, and he's thinking, what if I die before it happens? So that's when he basically pens the small call to articles, which lean heavily on some other earlier documents, too, that he'd worked out with other people. Uh-huh. But basically it's, yeah, if I die, here's what I think, and here's what we agree with Roman. Here's the points that we disagree, but if we find a reasonable papist, if such a thing exists, here's what we can discuss, and then here's where they're just flat wrong. Okay. So it's really kind of Luther's fullest critique of Rome. That council never happens. In fact, the council that does happen is the Council of Trent, which happens, which starts roughly three months after Luther ends up dying in, in 1546. Which is Roman Catholic exclusive, if I understand right. right. Uh, basically they didn't really let the Lutheran show up and war breaks out in the middle of the council uh-huh. and you have other things going on from there. And but the basically the, the things flow from there. So now with about the minute we, that we have left, I feel compelled to point out that just because this comes up, we're known as Lutherans. And we've talked about this before on the Canada all joy show, but mm-hmm. we're known as Lutherans. That's not to say that we hold to every word that dropped out of Luther's mouth as inspired, you know, no stuff. Um, our confession is the Augsburg Confession, which, again, penned by Melanchthon, the pastor talked about a while ago. Do um, you want to say anything about uh, that? The, the, other, the other confessions that we generally, as the summation of Lutheran doctrine, are the small catechism, the large catechism, mm-hmm. the, well, the three ecumenical creeds, Nicene Apostles and, and Athanasian, right. the Augsburg Confession. The apology to the Augsburg Confession, where Remember. basically your Roman Catholic guides complain about Luther. Uh, not Luther, Melanchthon writes out and defends the, the confession. Then the small card articles and attached to that is a small thing written by Melanchthon called the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. Okay. That really goes more into direct detail with, with let's talk about churchly authority. Yeah. Luther really doesn't like churchly authority. We have a point where we could conceive of churchly authority being okay. Uh-huh. Cause Melanchthon likes to kind of calm things down a bit. Right. But here's where it goes too far, so it's that. And then later on, there are other debates that come up in Lutheranism after, in the following generation after Luther dies. And they end up writing something called the Formula of Concord Okay. in uh, 1577 that addresses a lot of that. And then all those confessions get gathered up in the Formula of Con- uh, the, the Book of Concord, sorry, mm-hmm. in 1580. And that ends up being sort of the... the Here's what we officially believe, teach, and confess as Lutheran. Right on. So. And there you have the end of the uh, Gospel Boldly Reformation special episode. We will be back at the regular time and figurative place on the interwebs next week with uh, the Gospel of John and continuing that particular text. So hope you all have a wonderful uh, time until then. And again, thank you for listening to the show. Pastor Brown should be feeling whole and hearty very soon, and we look forward to being back with you all together. Take care. Bye-bye.